Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science across the globe. My name is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm a physician and former health tech executive. And my name is Alex Merwin. I'm an operations executive who's worked at two startups that exited as unicorns. And now Joe and I work with healthcare and life science startups and investors at AWS. Today, I'm joined by Michelle Wagner, CEO of MindStrong, a company that helps thousands of members manage anxiety, depression, PTSD, and serious mental illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder with quality care and cutting-edge technology. Michelle and I discuss why integrating all the data collected between treatment sessions can be a game-changer for behavioral health. Why selling digital health products via large employers can look a lot like direct-to-consumer sales. And why entrepreneurs in healthcare must learn to embrace iterative change as part of a large and complex system. Enjoy. Michelle Wagner, CEO of MindStrong. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's great to be here. To start off, can you tell us a bit about MindStrong and what you all do? Absolutely. So we're a virtual provider for behavioral healthcare focused on serious mental illness. Um, we use technology and an um, in-house provider system to provide high-quality care using data and technology to reinforce that care and help people get better faster and stay better. And what about your own journey? How did you become the person to lead what is undeniably a challenging but important process of navigating serious mental illness through technology and virtual care? Um, a little bit of luck, a lot of care uh, went into that. So I, for me personally, I have always had a deep appreciation for mental health care and folks paying attention to their own mental health, as well as recognizing that mental illness is largely undertreated across the United States and around the world and is really held back by a lot of stigma. I studied psychology when I was in college, thought I wanted to be a therapist and found my way into tech and loved this world even more. So after 25 years, I felt the need to circle back on where I was originally and use the my strengths in technology and understanding how technology companies work and software companies work and get back to the human side of things. I do believe that technology can be used for good and that's exactly what we're doing using technology infused into care to really inform both providers and patients so that they can use that data to improve their outcomes, both clinically and then for, of course, our payer partners from an operational perspective. So mental health care is in my heart. Um, I have a deep appreciation for all of the providers out there providing care for folks. And technology is in my brain and how we put it to work. So those two things can come together. I love it. There are a few spaces that have seen more of a rapid evolution in the last couple of years than virtual digital models for behavioral health in general. Has the MindStrong offering evolved as well over what time period? What does that, what does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, MindStrong was started many years ago by a wonderful person named Dr. Paul Dagum. And he had this idea that we carry our phones around in our pockets every day. We use them all day, sometimes all night, depending on how we're doing. And um, he had this theory that perhaps we were leaving a signal behind on our phone that if properly decoded, could help a clinician understand how someone is doing from a mental health perspective, even before they know. 
could we turn our phones into sort of crisis detectors for those with a mental illness? That was his hypothesis coming in. That's still at the root of a lot of what we do, wanting to use technology to be more predictive, be more proactive when it comes to mental illness. But a couple of things we learned along the way were you really need a clinician in the middle of that transaction. It's not just a, I use my phone, my phone told me, oh, you're depressed today. That's not really possible. But what is possible is if you take those signals and you decode them inside of a care relationship, you can use that data to help someone understand how they're doing. You can also use that data to open their minds to things like clinical assessments, really paying attention to how they're doing and how individual things happening in their lives can influence how their mental illness is controlling or not controlling their lives. So we use that technology to build a platform and our platform from the provider side is a web-based, it's better than any EMR, EHR you've ever seen because it's not an administrative tool, it's a patient care tool. Right. So that's the provider view of the platform and the patient view of the platform is an app on their phone. That's their connectivity to their provider team, whether it's chatting with them after hours and because they have an urgent need or setting up a video-based session or completing assessments. It also passively monitors them. And we can understand things like we can infer sleep and from sleep, we can infer depression and anxiety impact. That allows us to actually treat the symptoms, not just diagnose and then label someone with some illness. And, you know, we actually try to tackle the individual things that are troubling them in that moment. The technology is just a core to how our care team operates day by day. One of the most interesting things about tech enabling the behavioral health relationship that I've seen as a former clinician is that it allows you to measure more than your predecessors just on the purely services side were doing. The old trope within healthcare is people like becoming surgeons because they get immediate feedback. Something yeah. bleeds and they know to stop that bleeding. Whereas if you're doing therapy or talk therapy or any of the behavioral health service providing specialties, it's a much longer, more amorphous process. What kind of metrics are you following to know that you're succeeding in those care relationships? Yeah. So um, this is a great question and one that's really core to how we operate from a measurement perspective. So we use the DSM-5 as our initial screener, and that's a broad-based screener that helps us understand someone's symptoms across, forget about a diagnosis, just across this, a slew of mental illness-related symptoms. And then we have built proprietary tools that if someone if someone's symptoms rise to an elevated level, they will automatically get put into a level two survey kind of cycle. And here we use Promise. We don't use GAD7, we don't use PHQ. The language in those we don't find to be as effective at getting at the actual needs of a patient. So using the Promise level two scores for anxiety and depression in a two week cycle. So then that provider and the member get to see how they're doing over time. Then we turn that data into care plans where goals specifically designed for that member, we call our patients members, goals specifically designed for that member are aligned to those measurement factors. 
So you have a goal of moving from severe to moderate, moderate to mild on your anxiety promise um, assessment. Your, your provider sets you up with a number of actions that you would take as a member in between session. And then you track those things in, in the app and then your provider tracks them from their perspective. And so that immediate feedback, like you're talking about with a surgeon, is really powerful to motivate people. So I often say movement is improvement. And that's what you're getting at is like, can you see the movement? Can you see that those actions changed how your anxiety was operating or how your depression was for that period of time? And we see that it has a far better, we see people get better faster and then they can maintain those lower assessment scores over time. I'm really impressed with the thoughtfulness and granularity of how you've approached that too. I mean, this is not this is not just a box check, right? In terms of what your screening protocols look like. All of them have strengths and weaknesses as you alluded to, but you found one that works for you and the providers that you have and the model that you have. Clearly, you've there's been a lot of time and energy that's gone into that. Um, I'm curious on the tech stack side, you talked about at the, that at the beginning, the marriage of technology and behavioral health and the, the brain and the heart and all those pieces that go into that. What, how does the current tech stack, and you don't need to be super specific, but in general, what does the tech stack allow you to do now to make MindStrong possible? That's one of the things that I love that I get to explore on this podcast is why now? Like what's the moment from a tech perspective that allows you all to do this at scale? Yeah. So I think a lot of virtual providers create a web-based portal for their patients to connect with their providers. And that's great because there's a huge problem with access, both in terms of the number of providers available and how long it takes to get in with a provider. And a standard web portal will allow that access. For us, we needed to extend it all the way through to an app on your phone because being an app on your phone allows us to turn on that passive monitoring we do this very transparently. We're not creepy. We're not paying attention to things like exactly what you type or who you type to or where you put your credit card number, any of those things. That's not as interesting to us or helpful in your care. But by uh, our members seeing that we can passively monitor them, we can infer things like I mentioned, inferring sleep, or we call it rest. And a lot of work has been done on the rest side of things to correlate rest with depression and anxiety. And so our goal is ultimately back to Paul's goal to use that phone as an early indicator of potential crisis. And we do that with, we have digital biomarkers that Paul established many years ago. These are cognitive biomarkers, things like memory and valiance and executive functioning. These help us understand how someone is doing based on how they're using their device how they're tapping, how quickly they're scrolling around, how many times they open apps, what type of apps they open. This information then can feed into our system to help our providers understand how someone is doing outside of that short period of time where you're looking at each other on a video like we are right now. That fits into what it sounds like a larger data strategy of how you serve members and what you're serving up for providers in the process. You're expanding the data aperture significantly, it sounds like. That's right. And that's really powerful for our providers because if if we rewind to what a provider-patient experience is like in person, and I'm just going to use, you can use therapy or psychiatry. Psychiatry, there's even more time in between sessions. 
But typically you would go and you would sit in that waiting room. There's like some old magazine from two years ago where half the, it's like a food and wine and half right. the recipes have been ripped out. And you said you awkwardly wait and then you have some strange interaction with a previous patient leaving and you go in and you sit down and you, and you have that one-to-one -one conversation and maybe, maybe they ask you some questions that look like the promise or like a GAT7 or PHQ. Maybe they integrate it into the conversation, but you do your work for your 45 minutes or an hour and then you leave. They take notes probably on a notebook and a piece of paper and pencil. And maybe you come back in a couple of weeks, but you don't, then you start again. There's nothing that connects you in between. That provider has no idea what happened before you walked into that room. They have no idea what your state of mind was for the last two weeks or the last month or however long it's been. Yet in a virtual setting, it's exactly the same for most virtual providers. But for us, it's about integrating all of the in-between data moments and turning those into insights where when you walk in that session, preferably speaking, walk in that session, right. your provider now can see, hey, Joe took three different assessments since we saw last. I can see he also filled out his daily mood survey so I can start to see what days may have been harder or easier for him. And I can specifically have a ask a question like, hey, let's look at your mood survey for last Thursday. It looks like you had a great day. And at the same time, your depression assessment scores are coming down. Let's talk about how things are going. So you're suddenly incorporating that data into the care model itself in a super powerful way. It doesn't make the data the product so much as making the data the insight that helps the provider and the patient get to a better outcome. And as these models have evolved, not just for behavioral, but for all the digital modalities for care, partner strategies become really interesting and tangible, whereas you're delivering more value in the space. Others are recognizing that they want to include you as part of whatever their package is. What does your partner strategy look like? Where are you, like, what other folks are you bringing into the, to the fold? Yeah, we have a lot of things we're exploring for next year. Um, things like collaborative care with primary care physicians. We do this work today because a lot of folks have like core mood stabilizers prescribed by their primary care physician, and they may or may not be getting therapy alongside that. We find that in our platform, having the psychiatry team, the therapy team, our coaching team all work together is really powerful. And we want to extend that and share that information with a primary who may have other physical health needs that patient is managing. And actually bringing these together is really interesting to us. Behavioral health has always kind of lived in its own lane. And we want to merge that lane in a, in a more impactful way because we can see in our analysis that when we help people get their behavioral health in check, their physical health gets better too. They're more likely to manage those comorbidities and the people managing those comorbidities. It, imagine if we could work together, how much more sustainable those improvements would be for those patients. And in a, any total cost of care model based on primary care as the quarterback, the behavioral health, the spend that is downstream that you can directly account to behavioral health, much less as you alluded to, Michelle, the things that you, that may be connected one layer out or two layers out from that really, really tough to get at in the primary care space, in part because of exactly what you said. Like it's 
there's a hesitation on the part of many primary care physicians to wade out into that because if yeah. they do the PHQ-9, all of a sudden they're on the hook for whatever it, it shows. And I get that. Like you don't draw labs right as a patient's about to leave the hospital because you have to deal with whatever shows up on those labs and they may be yeah. ready to go otherwise. So you want to make sure that you have a pathway for them. And MindStrong not only gives you the front of that, but it gives you the long tail of what that treatment could be. And you feel like you're setting your patients up for success as members of MindStrong and not, okay, well, we're going to have to do a complex referral process and sort of figure it out. So that, that seems like it would be a really fertile area for, for a partnership down the road. Yeah. It's really interesting to us and something we're exploring for next year. Now you have like a, a, a multi-channel approach on the growth side um, from what I've seen. You're, you have individuals, you have payers, you have, you know, other provider groups, et cetera, um, employers. What's the, like, how do you, how do you slice and dice the universe and where have you seen the most growth among those channels? Yeah. So the, our kind of favorite channel is also the hardest channel. Always. Um, always, you know, yeah. that's just how it shakes out. But um, our favorite channel is the payer channel mm. because um, we are very interested in value-based care arrangements with payers. That also puts us into the Medicare and Medicaid um, channel within the payers. Although we find with payers, if you want to do work with their Medicare business, you need to do work with their commercial business. So w one channel for us is commercial. This is like our health insurance through our employers or a self-insured plan. Um, and that looks like a direct-to-consumer model. That is a requirement for us, but it's also a heavy lift. So we're, you know, we always try to find a balance there of how much, how much we spend there and whether or not that's the right place to really invest big because DTC is expensive. But our sweet spot is payers. So getting into a payer relationship where they say, wow, I have this population that has a need. They're not getting the need met. We see the link. Innovative payers are really important to us. The more thoughtful they are about saying, yes, behavioral truly links to physical health costs. And we want to both get our members better and stable. And we need to lower the total cost of care for them because that's how we pay for them to have more resources. For them, it's just a cycle. They're just moving money around to get to the right sweet spot for each member. Then we end up in a direct relationship with the payer. They tell us who their patients are that need the most help. And then we have kind of a concierge style support network for those members. We find that our members, more than half of them are in rural parts of the country. So they don't have access to care locally. Um, they've probably been going without for some time. The virtual side of things is really interesting to them. And I saw, I saw your eyebrow shift whenever I said Medicare. And that's the same thing we get from a lot of folks. They think, oh, Medicare is my grandparents or my parents, depending on what generation you are. And you'd be surprised at how tech savvy our, our Medicare folks are. Our average age is over 50. And I mean, even, even my dad, you know, he has the connected device uh, watch. He has the connected device blood pressure monitor. He's on his phone every day looking at his blood pressure. And, you know, he's in his late 70s. So they're, they are very interested in, in the data that comes from paying attention to their health. And they're very open to virtual care, not just because of COVID, but I do think 
that's there's very few benefits to COVID, but that was one of them that allowed people to see different ways to get the care that they need. Did you see the growth during the peak of COVID that a lot of folks attached to the behavioral health space? We did not have a direct-to-consumer product during okay. COVID. And that's just, it wasn't part of our business model at the time. And when you say that the channels that you have before look like D2C, is that because you you could have this as a benefit, but that doesn't mean people will actually do it. Like it has, you still have to remarket it beyond that initial sale for the the membership to pick it up. Is that is that right? That's right. That's exactly right. And how do you do that? Working at large companies, working at small companies, that navigation piece is a really tough nut to crack a lot of times where, um, and I'm sure for MindStrong with the traction you've had, like it doesn't stop at that buyer, the buyer at the top of the food chain that you need users that are actually using this. How do you navigate that buyer user split and drive adoption? Yeah, that's it. It's a great question and it is very challenging. On the direct-to-consumer side, you get in-network, you contractually, that, that's its own ball of wax of like getting credentialed and, and getting in-network with the payer system for a commercial group. Really, all that does is pop your name on a provider list on a website. Right. So then you have to be discovered. And to be discovered, you have to be in the right place at the right time. And that means you're forced into the marketing swing that... Our team manages eloquently, but you know, you're always like, how much did it cost to do that? And did it work? And so we track so many metrics on the marketing side of the house, just like a lot of DTC companies out there where you're saying, okay, I put this ad out, mm -hmm. it's deep linked back to the app so that I can watch behaviors and see exactly how efficient or effective that ad was. Okay. Change the word, change mm -hmm. the, the demographic, change the time of day, you know? So that's, it's a lot of magic that goes into it, but a lot of data behind that magic. So that's the art and science of marketing to direct to consumer. Unfortunately, the pricing for that marketing is based on how many people are in the space. And so the more companies that are here, the better we are at closing access gaps, but the more expensive it gets to actually right. market those access gap closures. So that's, that's one of the trickiest parts on the direct to consumer side. On the payer side, where the payer says, hey, we have these people we need you to take care of, we, the, the work to connect with them while less expensive from a marketing perspective is a lot more white glove. So it's a lot more, you know, we want to introduce them to us. We want to make sure that we're a good fit for one another. That takes a human to human touch. And once we have that touch in which we create that connection, we know pretty quickly and they know pretty quickly we can build that trust and work together to get their care sorted. Um, so it's very, very, very different user connection models, if you will, versus if, if you treat the customer as the payer, whoever's paying the bill, um, that model's quite different. One of the themes that I bring up and am struck by how often it comes up as I'm doing this podcast is the role of the very high level of ambient consumer technology in our lives. Like you talked about the, the Medicare, Medicare aged folks, like your, your father, everyone is now conditioned that any app, anything on your phone that you use has this super high standard. Any retail experience has to be at the level of Amazon. And so yeah. 
our predecessors in the health tech world never had to navigate that, which is part of the reason that so much of the software is not great, to put it mildly. But you talked about your platform as being beautiful and easy to use and all those things that would people tend not to associate with historically with software and products in the space. How much have you really thought through that marketing to a, let's call it a captive group on the employer side as like a true marketing effort, the same way as if you had a consumer brand that was out on name the platform, it sounds like you're thinking about it very much the same way. That's right. That's exactly right. And our marketing team is led by someone who has that consumer background that is thinking in the headspace of the consumer. I'm looking for something specific. I need a look and feel that feels like me, feels comfortable, that I can trust. Our design leader is always trying to get in the heads of both our providers on the provider side of the platform and our members on the member side of the platform to say, how are they going to use this? And I think that's one of the unique things about the platform itself is every other EHR EMR out there is was first an electronic health record. Okay, I'm going to take this off paper and put it into the computer. And then it was, oh, I can make billing more efficient. I can be compliant. I, and we're all of those things, but they're not at the forefront. At the forefront is, how are you going to interact with this software? And how is that interaction going to make your experience better and keep you engaged in your care so that you can actually get healthier? And that's at the forefront of our design. It's at the forefront of our marketing. We recently went through a rebrand. We spent, as the CEO, I was anxious the whole time because I wanted it to be done, but we also wanted it to be done right. And so we took our time to, to get through that rebrand. And it was really important that we got the imagery right, the colors right, mm. the fonts right, all the things that no one realizes how much someone thought about. What does that G look like? Right. But it matters to us because sometimes... That's the only thing someone gets to see about what we're doing. And if it's, if they can look at that and think, oh, that looks like me, or this makes me comfortable, then we know that we can be there for them whenever maybe they're not in the best place to make those calls. I'm, I wonder how much the mission of the company comes through for you as a leader of the folks that work at the company. And by that, I mean, high growth, startups, healthcare, the people who work in those spaces, it's usually not a great recipe or can be not a great recipe, let's say, for the strong mental health, to be honest. Like these are tough working environments, but what responsibility do you feel having a company with such a strong mission out in the space for the rest of the world, for the folks that you work with every day, you know, the folks you are, are on your Slack channels and emails uh, internally at MindStrong. Yeah, this is this is really important to me personally. And I, um, uh, uh, any of our employees that listen to this, they'll probably laugh and maybe roll their eyes when they hear me say, you know, I, I end every all hands with be good to yourself. And I've said for years, you're no good to anyone else if you're no good to yourself. That's true at work. It's true at home. It's true everywhere. And, and so, you know, it's sort of like, you know, when you're on an airplane, they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first before trying right. to help someone else. And it's true. It's the same concept and how we operate internally, how we treat our patients, how we build our software, all of it is linked through our value system. And 
I know a lot of companies talk about how important their values are, but I truly believe that we live them every day. We're not perfect at it. They help us make better decisions. Our first value is members first. So we're always thinking about how is a member going to experience this? And I don't mean that this, you know, every value has a, has a challenging side, but one of them is then you could try to build for every possible member situation out there. So you got to be careful. The word is members, majority right. first. In the how do you get to as many and treat as many as possible? We're compassionate as individuals. And so we want to understand where they are. And then we know that what we're building is not for us. It's for a big group, a big population out there. But our second value is called create the space. And this is kind of the internal side of that. So creating the space for us to all show up as our authentic selves. And that means we all work really hard. I work every Sunday. I try really hard not to send an email on Sunday or a Slack on Sunday. I love that delayed because I don't want somebody else to do it. I do it for me. I love what I do and I love getting prepared for the week. It's how I come into the week really ready to kick tail. And, uh, but I don't want anyone else to get drug into it. So I think there are behaviors and decisions that we make as leaders and as individuals in the company that help us show up as our best selves so that we can serve our members and take care of our providers at the same time. I like to end this show on a piece of advice for particularly the entrepreneurs and others, budding entrepreneurs out there that are listening. And the advice I'd love from you as the CEO of a growing behavioral health company and that's already established in the space, it's crowded. It's undeniably crowded and has gotten more crowded over the last couple of years. But what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who want to get into this space, who want to have an impact? What are the things that you should, you would encourage them to think about? I think about a couple of things. Um, first, one of the biggest shockers for me was that payers in the healthcare system define innovation different differently than tech does. Innovation in healthcare is iterative, not big, bold, you know, one at a time, outlandish change. That's a shift. And so embrace that, learn how to embrace that and understand what steps you want to contribute to. Coming in and trying to be big and bold right out of the gate will be met with rejection from a system that just doesn't know how, you know, that's not how they operate. That's not a criticism. It's just, it's just a fact. And knowing it walking in, I think is really powerful. The other thing is figure out your go-to-market. Who are you selling to? And is your user different from your customer? And get really clear about what their needs are so that you can find the overlap in those needs and how you're going to address that overlap. Because one person's paying, the other person's using, and those things don't always coincide in a way that benefits both. So really getting crystal clear about that go-to-market plan, who your user is, who your buyer is, because it could be the same person. You could be selling to a payer and they could be the user of your product or it could be different. And I think it's really important to do that research and deeply understand because it's a very complex health is a healthcare is a very complex industry to dive into. Michelle Wagner, CEO of MindStrong. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Joe. This was fun. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and rating. It helps others find us. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please go to aws.amazon.com startups.